This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You can find it on the page 807 in the Bibles in your rooms if you'd like to follow along. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it had rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house they saw a child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him and then opening their treasures they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed on their own country by another way this is the word of the Lord thank you God. well we've been in series here called The Characters of Christmas, walking through the first couple chapters of Matthew's Gospel. In the first week, we looked at uh, the genealogy that opens the New Testament, and we honed in on the five women's names who are mentioned in Jesus' family tree. We called this uh, the mothers of Jesus. And then last week, we talked about the so-called fathers of Jesus, still a little bit in the genealogy. We talked about uh, Jesus being the son of Abraham, the son of David, and what that meant, and and then eventually we made our way to camp out on the role that Joseph played in the Christmas story. But today we're talking about the Magi. Your translation might say the wise men who come from the east to Jerusalem. And the wise men are a common feature of most of our nativity sets. Maybe you grew up playing with them uh, when you were little. And you know they were kind of maybe some of the best ones because they came with the camels too usually, right? And much fun to, to play with. But this morning... Think about the story in three ways. I want to talk first just about who the Magi were, right? Who were they? Secondly, I want to talk about the encounter that they had with Jesus. And then finally, we'll think about uh, the Magi, the response to Jesus, and what that tells us about our response to Jesus as well. All right, so first let's talk about the wise men, about uh, the Magi. Who are they? This is a, a well-known story. But about 100 years ago, uh, early 20th century, let's say, uh, many historians insisted that this could not possibly have happened. This couldn't be an historical account. It couldn't be true. The idea that pagan philosophers would come from the East somewhere to worship in Israel in the first century, that, that notion seems so far-fetched. It was, it was preposterous. But what's interesting is that now, here 100 years later, 
consensus can change on this thing. Scholars believe now that, even secular scholars believe now that this is entirely plausible to think through historically for, for a number of reasons. First, the idea that a special star could herald some significant event, could herald the birth of, uh, of some famous people, or the death, for that matter, of famous people. Uh, the idea that, that some special star in the sky that could signify something significant was a widespread belief in the ancient world. Magi were historians. They studied the wisdom and the lore of various cultures in the known world. They also studied astronomy and astrology. We separate those two things in our culture, right? Astronomy, laws of motion of the stars. Astrology is attaching some sort of meaning or special significance to the motion of the stars. But in the ancient Near East, there was very little separation between these things. Interesting, except for the Jews. Right? The Jews made that distinction. Who distrusted astrology. But the Magi didn't. They didn't distrust astrology. They looked for meaning and significant events and the motion of the planets and the stars. And one of the stranger flukes of history was after the death of Julius Caesar in 44 BC, apparently there was a, a supernova that appeared over Julius Caesar's funeral pyre. These are the kind of events that you know really keep the astrology business going, right? Things like that happen. And so it was not unprecedented at all for a phenomenon in the night sky to cause some wonder. Right? Something special happening here to even to prompt the journey. The Roman historians Cassius and Suetonius wrote about a similar visit by Eastern Magi to Nero, the emperor in the first century AD. And so this idea that a special star could signify something special going on this was a widespread belief in the ancient world. The second thing that makes historians now think that this is not uh, an unbelievable or far-fetched story is that there was a rumor in the Mediterranean world that out of the land of Judea would come a great ruler. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, they both tell us about Vespasian. It was a Roman general who became famous for putting down a rebellion in Judea in the late 60s AD. He reconquered Judea after an uprising. And after this, he came back to Rome and he campaigned to become the emperor. And what was the center of his campaign? He claimed that he was the ruler that was supposed to come out of Judea. Again, another reason this is not a far-fetched idea. But the third was that there was some kind of astronomical events that did happen right around the time that Jesus was born. A few years before Jesus' birth, Halley's Comet was visible. That was probably, that probably a little bit too early for that to be what this was. Uh, Johannes Kepler believed that it was a supernova that Chinese astronomers identified as visible for 70 days toward the end of Herod's reign. Perhaps that was it. Others believed it was an odd planetary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which also would have been visible around the time of Jesus' birth. But the point being, whatever it was, the idea that astrologers from the East would come and say, what's going on here? Where, where is he? What, what is this about? Is not far-fetched at all. It makes a whole lot of sense. But we haven't really talked about who these men were. Right? Who came to visit Jesus? It's a, a sparse story for us here in Matthew 2. And all kinds of legends, probably because it's a sparse story, all kinds of legends have sprung up as a way to kind of fill out the details. Let's say first here what, what we don't know exactly. For example, we don't know that these men were kings. Right? Despite the song we just sang, we three kings. Right? We don't know that they were kings. 
We just know that they brought expensive gifts. And we don't know that there were three of them, actually. It's usually assumed based on the mention of three gifts. And we also don't necessarily know that they come from the Orient. Verse 2 says, we saw the star at we three kings from Orient. We don't know that's where they came from. Verse 2 says, we saw the star when it rose. But it can also be translated, we saw the star from the east. So there's a lot that we don't know. But what we do know is important. We do know that they came from a great distance, right? They weren't from Israel. Matthew calls them magi. Your translation probably says wise men, but the Greek word in the New Testament is magi. It's the same word that we get magic from. The magi were astronomers. They were astrologers, as I said. Very often they were pagan priests. And the important thing to note here is that these men were certainly not Jews. They were Gentiles. And the Old Testament said that when the real king would come, when the Messiah would come, the Gentiles would come and they would bow down and they would offer their gifts to him. The Magi here in our story are the beginning of what's sometimes called the procession of the Gentiles coming to worship Jesus. Matthew wants us to see even here at the beginning that Jesus is no tribal king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the ruler of the whole earth. Most of us in this room, right, unless you come from Jewish ethnic uh, heritage. Most of the rest of us in the room come from uh, this stock, right? We're part of this procession of the Gentiles. It begins with Magi. And the procession of the gospel going out to the very ends of the world is still happening today, 2,000 years later. It's one of the reasons why we are committed as a church to partnerships with ministries like Partners India, training church planters to bring the gospel to Rural northern India, which is less than 1% Christian. It's one of the reasons we're committed to supporting the work of China partnership. Pastor Ryan spends hours each week working directly with Chinese pastors, but also doing translation work. It's why we're sending a group from New City to Mazatlan, Mexico this summer. It's why we support Walter Wood as he coaches church planters in southern Europe. It's why we support church planters like Barry and Amy Shutter in Hounslow, a neighborhood in London populated with many South Asian peoples. It's why we're excited to send Nate and Sarah Edwards back to Kenya in February. Procession of the gospel going to the very ends of the earth. And that theme, the gospel among the nations, is actually forms the bookends of the gospel of Matthew. Here at the very beginning, right, you have the Magi coming to bring Jesus gifts. And at the very end of the gospel of Matthew, you have Jesus sending his disciples out to proclaim the gospel to the very ends of the earth, the Great Commission, bookending all of Matthew's gospel is the notion of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. Before we move on, think about this one last thing here too. What a strange group that come to visit Jesus. Who, who is it that the, the gospel stories tell us come to see Jesus? Well, there's the shepherds, Luke chapter 2. Then there's the wise men, there's the magi, Matthew 2. These groups of people could not be any more different. Shepherds were low class, low education, mostly despised. The Magi, on the other hand, were educated, they were wealthy, they were uh, aristocratic to some extent. Yet both attracted to Jesus. Thirty years ago, I went uh, back to Boston to uh, for my grandfather's funeral. Uh, actually, not in Boston proper, but Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is just north of Boston. My dad grew up and now has, Lawrence has the uh, unenviable designation of being the uh, stolen car capital of the 
United States. And uh, true to form, there we were in the funeral home uh, waiting to, to leave for the graveside service. And while we were sitting there, uh, several cars were stolen out of the funeral procession. That's, that's not nice when that happens. Uh, it was a little funny, I guess, but it wasn't, it wasn't nice. And uh, so what that left us with was trying to get to the graveside, trying to get to the burial with uh, not enough cars. Too many people, not enough cars. And so we piled in like, you know, clown car kind of uh, scenario. And I was crammed in the back of a station wagon with my brother and uh, my cousin Gary. We sometimes call him my crazy cousin Gary. And uh, probably you all have a crazy cousin Gary, right? And, and if you don't, it might mean that you're the crazy cousin Gary. <laughs> uh, Gary would say all kinds of outlandish things. And um, here we are in the back of the station wagon, and my brother Scott, Gary, and myself. And, and Gary had heard that my brother Scott and I had both become Christians fairly recently. And so he looked at us kind of puzzled, and he says, okay, so you're Christians. Does that mean you shave your head and go from state to state? And I was like, Gary, I think you're thinking of something else. Like, uh, but then, you know, he, he, then, he then followed up with a, what I think is a really perceptive question, which is maybe what he was trying to get at in the first place. He said, what kind of people become Christians? What kind of people become Christians? In other words, he was asking, what type of people are attracted to Jesus. And we get the answer right here. The beginning of the Gospels. Who comes to see Jesus when he's born? It's the shepherds in Luke 2. It's the Magi in Matthew 2. Poor peasants and rich foreigners. That means the Gospel is for everybody. The rich and the poor and the in-between. The moral and the immoral. The insiders and the outsiders. The educated and the uneducated. And I suppose... Shepherds and the Magi do have something in common. In that they both were thought to be far from God. Shepherds were low class, rough around the edges, ritually unclean. The Magi were ethnic and theological outsiders. The Bible does not have good things to say about astrology. These were guys who were looking for meaning in creation when they should have been looking to their creator for meaning. And yet, God meets them where they're at. Brings them to see the newborn king. All right, so that's the Magi word. But secondly, let's take a look at what happens with this encounter. Right, they make their way, eventually, to Jesus. Now, this is the, uh, the part in the Christmas pageants where they usually get it quite wrong. Because how do the Magi find Jesus? Right, what leads them to Jesus? It's not the star. It's the scripture. Right, read closely with me here. Verse 1. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then he goes on to quote, Micah chapter 5. The star gets them to Jerusalem, but the scripture gets them to Bethlehem. The star gets them to Jerusalem, but the scripture gets them to Jesus. And this seems like a small detail, maybe, but do you know that this is a major theme in all of the scripture? Romans chapter 1, Psalm 19, they all tell us that, that God reveals himself to us in two ways. He reveals himself to us through the world that he's made, through the majesty of creation, the uh, intricacy of our bodies, 
sometimes the theologians call that natural revelation, but that alone cannot tell us how to get to the king. It can't tell us how to get to God. It can tell us we have a need for God, not how to get to him. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that we need God to reveal himself to us. That's special revelation, and that's exactly what Christmas is all about. We can't get to God. We can't find out God. We can discover we have a need for God. The point of Christmas is that God comes down. God reveals himself to us. Frederick Dale Brunner puts it this way. The star brings us to Jerusalem. Only scripture brings us to Bethlehem. Creation can bring us to the church. Only the church's Bible can bring us to Christ. To be sure, the star reappears, but significantly, only after the scripture says Bethlehem. God's revelation in creation raises the questions and begins the quest. God's revelation in scripture directs us to the goal. And what is the goal? The goal is to come to Jesus, to be near Jesus. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child of Mary's mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Chapter 1, Matthew's already told us that his name will be Emmanuel. He'll be called God with us. And you get a picture of this here. Right? Both his humanity and his deity. He's a real child. He doesn't do anything remarkable except be a child. No precious wisdom, no halos and evidence. Jesus' humanity is on display. No greater glory, no miracles from the crib. He's a human child. The born a king. We also see evidence of his divinity here. They fall down. They worship him. He's a human, but he's not merely so. It says in Greek, they proskuneo. It's a Greek word for worship. They prostrated themselves before him. They worshiped him. It's important to know the Bible forbids the worship of any being but God. One time in Acts chapter 10, someone tried to fall down and worship Peter. They had seen Peter do these mighty deeds. Somebody fell down and began to worship. And Peter said, what are you, crazy? Stand up, right? I'm only a man. Don't worship me. And even the angels, right? In Revelation 19, John is tempted to worship an angelic being. They say the same thing. You must not do that. Worship God alone. But here, right, Matthew favorably portrays these wise men bowing, prostrating themselves. Why? Because this is the king. This is the Messiah. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. Finally here, let's talk about their response. Of the Magi, and then perhaps tease out a little bit of what our response ought to be. The Magi first, they, they laid down their lives to go on this journey. That is, they traveled quite a distance to get there, right? To get to Jesus. Most scholars think that based on the description here by Matthew and how other ancient literature uses the term Magi, that they probably came from at least as far as modern-day Iran. And so this is not a day's drive. This is not an easy uh, route to traverse. It would have been dangerous. It's the ancient world. No small undertaking, right? It was inconvenient. It was dangerous. They had to put their lives on hold to do it. It cost them time. It cost them money. It cost them hardship to make this journey. But that's what you do when the kingdom of the world comes, right? 
You reorient everything in your life in order to get near Him. This is important to think about as we're getting to that time of year where we start to make New Year. I know you get your mind on Christmas, but we're not too far off from New Year's resolutions, right? Maybe you're already making them. Let me suggest when you're thinking about your New Year's resolutions that we ought to be factoring in something like this, asking ourselves, are we willing to reorient our lives to get near Jesus in 2024? Are you willing to be inconvenienced to be near Him, to, to serve other people, to participate in His mission in the world? You know, can we just all make an agreement together, like a collectively as a group? Can we make an agreement this year that we're not going to say, you know, I'm just so busy. Right? We, 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 we use that term a lot. I'd like to spend more time in prayer and Bible reading, but I'm, but I'm so busy. I'd like to join a community group, but I'm so busy. I'd like to volunteer, but I'm so busy. I'd like to invest in getting to know my neighbors or serving my community, but I'm, I'm so busy. And listen, look, I'm, uh, you know, don't hear this as judgy. Like, I'm speaking to myself here, right? I'm sympathetic to that concern of busyness. I know the stage of life that a lot of you are in. I'm in that stage of life, too. But the truth is, we have more control over our calendars than we often think we do. We need to exercise the agency that we have. We might need to learn how to be more intentional with our time. We might need to learn to say no to some things. Can't do everything. We might need to sign up for Jim Michelle's Theology Lab on how to write a rule of life, right? How to make a, a plan for how to use your time and the habits and rhythms you want to cook into your schedule. What I want to emphasize with you is we should make time for the things that we really care about. What will you move things around for in 2024? At the Magi, we're willing to be inconvenienced. They laid down their lives to go on this journey. Secondly, notice they took a risk. We're going to talk about Herod in a couple weeks, a couple Sundays from now. The darker side of Christmas. Remember Herod, once Jesus dead. Any other king's arrival king. And so Herod orders, in the last part of chapter 2, he orders all the children under age 2 to be killed. Herod's a, a dangerous man. But notice, the Magi oppose him, or at least they directly disobey him. Herod says, when you find him, make sure and tell me where he is so I too can come and worship him. Right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? The wise men don't do it. They're warned in a dream. They go underground. They get off the grid. They sneak away and get to home without telling Herod where Jesus is. But all this should remind us that if you throw your lot in with Jesus, there will be some opposition. Jesus said later on to his disciples, he said, a servant is not above his master. That is, if, if he experiences persecution and difficulty and hardship, then his followers ought to expect some of the same. Following Christ will put you in some difficult spots. The old liturgical calendar was meant to convey some of this to us. Of course, we know December 25th is Christmas Day, but anybody know what December 26th is in the liturgical calendar? St. Stephen's Day, right? So December 25th, Christmas Day, the big celebration, St. Uh, December 26th, the very next day, still within the 12 days of Christmas, is the feast of the first Christian martyr. And there you get the dark side of Christmas. And then December 28th is Holy Innocence Day, remembering those children that Herod killed. All of this is meant to remind us Following Christ may cause you trouble. It probably will cause you trouble. Trouble perhaps from other people, but trouble in some moral dilemmas that you wouldn't have if you weren't trying to bring your life under Jesus' rule and reign. 
should be prepared for that. And finally, the last thing. The Magi fell down and worshipped him. That is, the end of their journey was not information. The talos, the, the purpose, the end of their journey was not just learning, it was worship. Christianity is not anti-intellectual, not at all, right? Christianity, rightly understood, pushes us to think, pushes us to ponder, to meditate, and to reflect. It's not anti-intellectual, but it's not merely intellectual. They bowed down, they worshipped. Verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And at New City, at our church, right, we do want you to learn more about Jesus this year, but not just so that you can have more information, not just so that you can get bigger brains, but ultimately so that you can worship, so that you can see him and know him and trust him and rejoice in him. And notice how they worshiped. It says they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts. Frankincense was expensive oil used in religious ceremonies, murders of sap used in perfumes, gold, even gold is. These were valuable and they became the support for when Mary and Joseph had to flee with Jesus to Egypt. The point here is part of their worship is giving God your best. These were rich gifts. These were sacrificial gifts. These were first fruits kind of giving. They were not the leftovers. They were the best. So as you're doing your gift giving this year, as you give your gifts to the Making Room campaign or where else you make your, your gifts, it's a chance for you to root that giving in the story of these early visitors bring their best to Jesus. And did you know giving is subject of an awful lot of our Christmas carols? You know, that little drummer boy, for example. Right? I have no gift to bring. You know that whole thing. I always thought this must have been Mary's response you know, to that. I appreciate the thought, but I just got Jesus. Who brings a drum? Right? So, newborn baby's bedside. You know, the, the last verse in Bleak Midwinter and captures it really. What can I give him? Poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I would bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. And what can I give him? Give him my heart. Part of your worship this year. Be giving your heart, your time, your attention, your best to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table, as we come during this season to the manger to adore Jesus, we are aware of the great gift that you have given us in Christ. This day, this year, we ask that you would help us to see him, to know him, to prioritize drawing near to him. And even as we continue to worship this morning, we ask that you would draw us near to Jesus as we commune with him at the supper. We pray this in the name of Emmanuel Christ with us. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.